Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. You're on the Christian channel that loves atheists, and I'm Braxton Hunter. And I've got a confession to make. I'm experiencing what I think most YouTubers probably experience every now and then, and that's a little bit of a creative block or writer's block. There's nothing right now at the moment that I just have to get out or that I really think God wants me to say, and I I don't believe in kind of just drumming something up. Uh, But I do always have a few things on the back burner that I want to get to at some point, and this is a great opportunity to get to at least one of those, and that is... My personal experience with Christianity, my personal testimony. Now, don't go away if you think this is going to be boring. It might be, but it might also be helpful in understanding something of the Christian faith, something of Christian doctrine or the Christian experience lived out over about four decades. And um, it also uh, is a good opportunity for me to say, to give myself some space to say some things that I never really get to say in other videos. Often whenever details about my uh, Christian upbringing or my Christian evangelical school experience or things like that, when those come up, they just come up, you know, in passing. Someone might on another show ask me to talk about my salvation experience or um, someone may ask a question in a Q&A that means I need to go back and talk about something that I experienced in my past. But, but I've never really just given my testimony that I can remember on this channel. And, and especially for those of you who have become subscribers or even patrons and are financially supporting what we're doing, I think you have a right to know who you're listening to. And um, so I'm going to share uh, my Christian experience with you. I don't want to just say my testimony, although it certainly is that, if by testimony we mean the entirety of my Christian experience. Uh, But a lot of times when people say, I'm going to share with you my testimony, they just mean their salvation experience. And this is going to be more than that. Um, So here goes. I was born the son of a megachurch pastor. My father was the pastor of a large church in Jacksonville, Florida. And at that time, there, the idea of a megachurch was a relatively new thing. There were some megachurches, but there weren't a lot of them. And whatever you want to say about what was good or bad about the idea or the phenomenon of megachurches, my father pastored one. And uh, so I grew up in that context. In fact, I remember when we moved from the church that the church building, that traditional looking church building that we had been in for uh, the first few years of my life to this massive sanctuary and gymnasium and complex with educational space near the Jacksonville Zoo on the north side of Jacksonville. And uh, it was exciting. It was it was new. It was fresh. It looked like we were going somewhere and we were. And many people were coming to Christ through my father's preaching, and many people were growing in their faith. And as a child, I had every reason to be proud 
of who my father was and what God was doing through his life. I enjoyed my experience as a pastor's kid. I enjoyed specifically being the pastor's kid that I was with the pastor father that I had. And I don't want to put emphasis on my father to the exclusion of my mother, both of my parents. I just feel like I won the lottery with my parents. I mean, they were both, are both incredible human beings, incredible ambassadors for Christ, and raised me, I think, uh, the way that God would want me raised. So anything that's gone wrong in my life, any mistakes I've made, that's on me. But uh, they did an incredible job. In fact, I've often said, and, and obviously I'm being hyperbolic here, but there's some truth in it. If I get to heaven one day and I realize that, or God tells me, hey, actually, um, there were two other perfect people besides, um, besides Jesus, and it's your parents, I, I wouldn't be too surprised. But that, uh, that was my experience growing up as a, as a pastor's kid. I went to a Christian school that my father started that was at our church. And at the most, the church had, I think, I think it's an auditorium that seated 5,000 or no, the auditorium seated 3,500 and the membership of the church was 5,000. So that gives you some idea of the context and size. Now, uh, I have a brother who's adopted and his experience is going to differ from mine. He was 10 years older than me. And so, I, you know, I don't know what he would say exactly about that experience, but I, I absolutely loved it because of the size of the church. And in a time when churches weren't really typically that big, uh, some of the movers and shakers of the city went to our church. And so what my father preached could theoretically have impact on things in the city. And Jacksonville is a relatively big city. Um, and so uh, he was on the new he was on the television at night, uh, about eight o'clock, I think, on Sunday nights. So he had an impact in the town. And uh, he was a controversial, straightforward uh, preacher. And so there were things that happened during our upbringing. Like I remember uh, police having to, uh, you know, escort us home one night after church. I remember my father having to wear a bulletproof vest into the pulpit. There were things like that that happened. Uh, what would I think about that if I were older and experiencing that? What sort of fears would I have as um, a kid who was probably at that time about eight years old, um, eight or nine? I, I, I thought it was cool. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was, you know, an adventure. But I really loved uh, that experience. I really, really loved that experience growing up that way. Uh, at five years old, um, I knelt on the brown shag carpet of the pastorum, which is the flowery term for the house that the church provides for the pastor and his family to live in. And I, I knelt in that brown shag carpet and prayed to receive Christ. I came to my father one morning and I said, Dad, I know that I'm a sinner. I know what sin is. I know that Jesus died for my sins and I want to be one of his followers for the rest of my life. And uh, some of my atheist friends would say, ah, you were clearly indoctrinated. Yes. And we all indoctrinate our children with certain things. And um, I consider myself a better person for having been indoctrinated with the truth of Christianity. I prayed to receive Christ and uh, was baptized even that morning. Now, about a year later in Vacation Bible School, I'll never forget it. I already began to experience doubts, not doubts about the truth of Christianity, but doubts about my personal salvation. This is something that I think most Christians experience to one degree or another. Uh, Hopefully, most of us get past that worry about um, about doubting our salvation. For me, getting past it was relatively easy because that year, when I was six years old at Vacation Bible School, we had a children's pastor, Brother Alvin. 
Brother Alvin is one of the most important influences on my life, one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever met. Brother Alvin uh, always wore a Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, pendant on his tie and so that the kids could remember his name. He did balloon animals. He did Bible stories in a creative way using an old school 1980s felt board. Of course, at the time it wasn't old school. It was the 1980s. And Brother Alvin uh, uh, caught me in, in vacation Bible school and I said to him, Brother Alvin, how do, I don't know that I'm really saved. I'm worried that I don't really know Jesus. And he said to me, he said, Braxton, does the Bible seem to teach that uh, if you repent of your sins and trust Jesus, that he'll save you? And I said, well, yeah, everybody knows that. And he said, okay, did you do that? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, does Jesus lie? And I said, no. And he said, well, if Jesus said that's what you need to make sure is true about you, and you did, and Jesus said if you did that, you'd be saved, then it doesn't make too much sense to worry about your salvation then, does it? Because that would be calling Jesus a liar. That hit me like a ton of bricks. And that day, as some have said, it was like I put a stake in the ground, a flag on the moon, and I said, from this point forward, I can always look back to this moment and know that I dealt with it. Now, unfortunately, that wasn't exactly the end of it, but it was pretty well the end of it. Uh, a couple of years went by, a few years went by, and when I was 10 years old, uh, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And my father went into full-time evangelistic ministry, traveling and preaching in churches all around America and sometimes outside of the country. He was usually gone, leaving on a Saturday and come back on a Wednesday night or Thursday morning. And so, uh, but I never felt like I had an absentee father. The good thing about this experience was, unlike most people whose parents work a regular job or pastor's families, um, when my dad was home, he was completely home. He was completely there for us, and he was all ours. So there wasn't any concern that he would have to run out to finish something at the office or anything like that. So I, I really felt like he was there for me throughout my childhood. But my mother deserves a Medal of Honor for keeping everything together when my father was gone. Um, so at this point in my life, when my father had gone into evangelism, traveling and, and preaching, uh, sometimes we would go with him. And I remember going with him one of the first times, uh, one of the first uh, revivals, we called them, that he went to preach. And uh, during one of those services, so I was 10 or 11 years old here. During one of those services, my father was preaching and I really just became overwhelmed with concern that, I, again, that I began doubting my salvation. And, you know, when you come to Christ at, say, five or six years old, which I do believe can genuinely happen, though I believe that needs to be dealt with very, very carefully, and I think my parents did. But when you come to Christ that early, there is a concern that uh, there's something that can happen. You know, later on, at that young age, you haven't really gotten a lot of good sinning under your belt. I mean, we're all sinners, but I hadn't, and I knew what was right and wrong, and I did wrong things. But I hadn't done, you know, certain things that I might consider from my perspective at the time, really bad things. And so, I mean, I wasn't like a serial killer at 11 years old, so don't get me wrong. But you can understand an 11 year old is starting to experience things. And, you know, he might do things that, that he sees are, are new, uh, sinful things he hadn't done before. And so I, uh, you know, lying to your parents, you know, uh, not doing your homework and lying to your parents. These seem like big deals in my household at my age. And so uh, I, um, I remember uh, feeling really convicted that, that maybe I'm not really saved. Well, at this particular church in North Carolina that we were at, 
it was one of the operations where like the sanctuary people that grew up in like Southern Baptist churches in the South will know what I'm talking about. But it was it was like a sanctuary and underneath the sanctuary, the whole length of the sanctuary was the fellowship hall for the church. And at the end of that underground fellowship hall was uh, a makeshift hotel room that the church had put together for when they had visiting preachers come. And so our family was staying in that room. So I felt free to leave the sanctuary during the service while my dad was preaching, went downstairs, and I'll never forget in that fellowship hall, leaning against one of the supports that held up the sanctuary and saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't know whether or not what happened to me when I was five years old was real, but I know that what I'm experiencing right now is real. I know that I understand everything right now. And I know that right now, the best I can, I'm turning everything over to you. I want to commit my life to you for the rest of my life. I know I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I turn from my sins. I know I'm going to make mistakes going forward, but it's not my intention to make those mistakes going forward. And I'm committing my life to serving you. Whatever had not been resolved by that point in my life was resolved there that night. And it was like uh, a ton of bricks coming off my shoulders, like everybody says. Uh, so that was that was a very influential moment in my life, and I'll never I'll never forget that. Um, when I got to Nat, when we were living in Nashville, I continued in Christian school. I was in public school for a little while, but then I was in Christian school for most of my upbringing, and I I really enjoyed the experience. I mean. There are certain things that happen when you're in middle school and high school that nobody experiences. There's awkwardness there. What lunch table do I sit at? Am I one of the, you know, am I friends with this person? Are they, you know, all these kind of the thoughts that you have. What about dating? What about girls? You know, this whole thing. So that was there. Those things that we are glad to leave in the past were there for sure. But in general, I'm glad for my Christian school upbringing. Um, it did reinforce to me uh it reinforced to me throughout my uh, upbringing that um, the dedication I needed to show toward the Lord. And I want to say something about this here because this is a pretty important moment. I see videos from atheists who will say, just recently from a genetically modified skeptic, he says things like, you know, it seems like in Christian college they had to have these prayer things and these uh, Bible studies and, and devotionals all the time in chapel because they've got to just really try to convince you anew all the time to maintain that, that belief and all those kind of things. I, I can't speak to his experience, but I can tell you that is not, that was not my experience nor the experience of my friends. And we always talked pretty openly about these things. The reason that Christian schools and Christian colleges have those kinds of things in place is not necessarily to try and uh, convince you anew every day of the truth of Christianity, but rather it's to help you facilitate a more dedicated and deeper walk with the Lord. Now, you can call that indoctrination, and on some not malicious definition of the term indoctrination, yeah, we were receiving doctrine, but we wanted it. We believed that Christianity was true. And uh, the people teaching it to us were not trying to pull the wool over their eyes. They believed uh, that Christianity was true. So this was something we were willingly participating in and our parents were aware of and something we wanted. And again, it wasn't to convince us that it was true. I mean, I'm not saying there weren't like apologetic moments here and there, but I don't remember any. It was about helping us to live the Christian life the way that young Christian kids want to live the Christian life. And so, uh, so I, I enjoyed that experience. I loved it. Met some friends there that I'm still friends with, even to this day. 
uh, two friends that I went to school with there live in the town that I live uh, that I live in now in Evansville. And both of them have worked here at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And one still does because that friendship was a lifelong. Those friendships were lifelong friendships. And they have the same sort of uh, an explanation of their Christian school upbringing as I did. But it was during this time that some really important things began to happen. Uh, first of all, as I said, I revisited my salvation and got that all sorted out. Uh, but during this period of time, I developed a real love for music. Now, this may seem unimportant at the moment, and perhaps it is unimportant. My brother Chad had been the one who had the vast music collection. He had all of the cassettes, you know, and then he had all of the CDs. And uh, you know, it, he was the one who was into that sort of thing. He's a graphic design artist. He was into design. He was into the entertainment stuff, movies, um, uh, music, all that. That was all Chad's stuff. And I think my parents had had kind of this understanding that I, I wasn't really going to go that way. But I was influenced not just by my parents, but also by my brother. And looking back, I think my parents and I would both say that was a wonderful thing. That was a good thing because it added a lot of creativity into uh, who, I, who I am and the way I think. And so um, during this process, I got into music. I'll never forget going to Hickory Hollow Mall in Nashville, Tennessee, and buying a cassette tape of MC Hammer's Too Legit to Quit with some money that I'd gotten for Christmas. And um, in the car, my parents, my father specifically, was bothered by this because I remember him specifically saying, music is Chad's thing. Why are you getting into music? Why are you buying? And it, there was, you know, my parents never forced us to only listen to Christian music. Uh, that, my parents were pretty, you know, open about that sort of thing. They, they, they weren't legalists, but they did prefer that if I listened to music, it would be Christian music. And trust me, I had a lot of DC talk, audio adrenaline, skillet, uh, you know, all, all these bands third day. Uh, I, I remember very clearly, and this tells me about my spirituality at that time in my life. I remember listening to thief by third day and crying. I mean, just bawling my eyes out my bedroom. Uh, and it's still a powerful song. If you haven't heard it, you should. But I got MC Hammer, and then I got Ace of Bass. Okay, now don't judge the musical choices of an adolescent too strongly, okay? But I had MC Hammer and Ace of Bass. Uh, and, you know, th this became important later because music became something that I thought I was going to build my life and career around. Um, I got into U2, and when I found U2, it was like, my eyes had been opened because here was a band that were uh, outspoken Christians, at least three of the four members, uh, but they weren't technically a Christian band. You couldn't get them at the Christian bookstore, you know, couldn't get them at Lifeway. Um, and their stage performance was powerful. I mean, they just connected with their audience. And I just always thought that was incredible. So I picked up the guitar and I started learning to play the guitar, although I have to say at this point, it was probably to impress girls more than it was uh, about anything to do with God. Um, but but I, I, I loved music and then uh, started taking guitar lessons. At some point during my teenage experience, I think it was when I was 16 years old, I uh, went on a mission trip to Michigan and Grand Rapids. And the mission trip was all built around building a baseball field clearing off this land so they could build a baseball field for this small church that wanted to have a ministry to young people 
And uh, so we were there at this church and doing VBS for the kids in the community while we were there. And so we did that. And on the last night that we were there, uh, my youth group, and I was really tight with my youth group. My youth group was in this little chapel of this church, arguing with each other, mad at each other about, of all things, how we were going to present like what sort of a production will we put on at church back home to present how God had done all these incredible spiritual things at this on this mission trip? I mean, people were arguing and in disagreement about how to express all these incredibly mind-blowing spiritual things. And now we'd all become so mature on this mission trip and we're arguing about that. I am not saying this so that you'll think I'm so great, but I was not a part of that argument. I was in a different argument, an argument with God of sorts sitting on the front row of that little church with all of that happening behind me in the pews. I was sitting there thinking about what I think God wanted me to do with my life. I, I had uh, plans to go into the music business. I wanted to be Bono, you know, um, and so I, that was my real passion at the time. But I also loved Jesus. I really loved church and I didn't want to give up that part. And of course, never planned to. At some point, our youth pastor, J.D. Davis, also a huge impact in my life, was sick of dealing with this rowdy youth group, frankly, and told everyone, just just shut up and bow your heads and pray. And then he said, I, I don't even care if you pray, just bow your heads and shut up. And so we did. Again, I'm sitting on the front row and I'm on the inside of the like like closest to the center aisle of this church on the left hand side. And I'm praying and I say to God, God, uh, I, I can already hear atheists online joking about this, but I said, God, I don't know exactly whether what I'm feeling right now is real or not. And you know what I ultimately want. I want to have a business in music, but I feel like you're leading me toward ministry of some sort and not music related ministry. Um, some kind of a preaching and teaching ministry. And if that's it, God, you're going to have to make it really clear for me because it's not what I want. I don't want to do that. I do. Th this may not be the most inspirational uh, testimony to those of you who are out there and thinking maybe God is leading you into some kind of ministry. But, but I, I said, I don't want that. Let me be clear. I want to be a musician. I want to be Bono. You know, I don't know if I said that in prayer, but he knew. Um, but I said, um, if that's what you want, I'll do it. But you've got to make it incredibly clear. At that moment, I opened my eyes and looked up and right in front of me. Is this what you want me to do, God? Is this what you want me to do? Right in front of me on the front of the communion table that most churches have, most churches of this sort. It said this do in remembrance of me. Most of them say that. And of course, I knew that most of them said that but I wasn't thinking about it. I just knew I was sitting on a pew in this church asking God to make it clear to me. I looked up and there it was. To me, that settled it. Coincidence, perhaps, but I don't think so. And one of the reasons that I'm so certain that God wanted me to do this particular kind of ministry is because it's not what I wanted. Some ministers say they just look at a pulpit and they, ju they just salivate because they want to preach. Not me. 
I've never wanted to preach. I mean, there may have been isolated moments where I was really excited about something that I believed God had laid on my heart to say to a congregation. And so I was excited in that moment. And there have certainly been times while preaching where I enjoyed exercising the gifts that I think God gave me. But at the beginning, I did not want to do it. And many times since then, I've not wanted to do it. And so this, this gives me some measure of confirmation. So I got up and I went to my youth pastor and I said, I'm not happy about this, but God has called me into the gospel ministry. We sat at what was the equivalent of a Denny's. It might have been a Denny's attached to our hotel room for till about one o'clock that morning, talking about this and talking about all the implications of it and what it might mean and all those kind of things. And of course, it, it, it happened. I did go into the gospel ministry, but my parents I think my parents were glad to hear this, but they didn't show it. I came home and I told my father, Dad, I think that God wants me to be in the gospel ministry. I think I'm called to be a preacher. And I'll never forget him saying, huh, and not showing any real excitement about it. And then encouraging me later on to go to school for music. In fact, I I did begin a program at Middle Tennessee State University in music business because I did ultimately realize that I'm never going to be Bono, but I can make money off of other people that might be Bono. And so, uh, so I decided to go into music business and took several courses there in that. But the reason I think my father encouraged that and didn't show overwhelming excitement at the idea that I was called to the gospel ministry was because he, he didn't want me to be doing it just to please him. I think that was what it was about. He wanted, if it was real, he wanted it to be real. And, and he didn't want it to be just something I was doing because I thought that's what he wanted. And looking back, that, that was that's meaningful. So uh, so I went to uh, although it could have saved him a lot of money if, uh, if if I hadn't gone to Middle Tennessee State. But there was a reason to go to Middle Tennessee State. And that's a, that's an important thing there. I met my wife and I was looking across at her one day in the KUC, the, uh, the, the student center there at Middle Tennessee State. And what initially attracted to me, me to her, was it love at first sight? No, I don't believe in love at first sight. Now, maybe it's real, but I think we've got a word for that. I think love at first sight could be better described as physical attraction or possibly lust. Uh, but, but it was certainly physical attraction. She was hot. So I went over there and I sat next to her and we began to talk. And I had pretty simple, basic um, requirements for someone that I was going to date. Number one, they couldn't be a smoker. Number two, they had to be female. And three, they had to be breathing. That was about it. I didn't have that many standards. Sarah surpassed them all. But one of my requirements was that they be a Christian because I believe, I don't believe in what has been termed missionary dating. It has worked out. In fact, in this story, you're going to hear an interesting story on that. But or an interesting take on that, but uh, I, I didn't believe in that. I believed that Christians should date other Christians because it's a lot um, easier to continue your devotion to Christ and continue your Christian living if uh, you, you date someone who's a Christian. Now, there are atheists out there who may be tempted to think, ah, because if you date a non-Christian, it might drag you into unbelief. Well, that certainly could be the case, I guess, but that's not really... You can't look at everything in terms of believing it's true or not believing it's true. Even for many people that walk away from the church or walk away from Christianity, however you want to frame that up, they still basically believe it's true or is probably true. They just don't, they just don't 
they're just not committed to it anymore. Or they're not, you know, it, it's not always about belief. And that's the important thing to mention, I think. Uh, but so I, I wanted to date, date Sarah. And so we started dating. And it was great. And she was a part of what sounded like a harmless, non-denominational church in our city. Well, in Nashville. And uh, she had what sounded like a normal gospel testimony. But as we talked more, I realized that someone at that church was trying to prevent her from dating me. Not prevent her from dating, but prevent her from dating me. And why? Because I wasn't a member of that particular church. Long story short, this particular group in Nashville turned out to be a bona fide cult in the truest sense of the word. In fact, there's a 60 Minutes episode about it um, because it had, they had churches in multiple cities. And it involved having what they call a discipler. If I have a male friend, um, say I'm a single guy and I've got a male friend and we decide we want to room together, uh, his discipler has to get with my discipler and we, they decide about whether it makes sense for us to room together. Adult, you know, men who are over 18. Uh, if you want to date someone, you got to run that past your discipler and you confess your sins to your discipler. And you receive a book of secret knowledge several years after you become a member of the church. And of course, in the early days, earlier days of the internet, I just ordered it off eBay, simple as can be. I was told, oh, you can't get a copy of this. Well, eBay, people had it. And it was, it was shocking. And um, so Sarah didn't, my wife didn't know a lot of that stuff about it. Um, this just, we learned this together, some of it. But it, it, did, it did turn out that, that this church was problematic. And uh, while we were dating, she visited with me um, a place where my dad was preaching in Owensboro, Kentucky, not too far from where I'm at right now. And we traveled up there and we visited. And, and uh, several weeks later, she told me that she had become a Christian on that night. And one of the strongest apologetics personally, I'm not asking you to believe on the basis of this, but something that I certainly experienced to some degree, because I know what this is like. I know what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like and how it differs from simply guilt and it doesn't have to do with how I was wired to think. Um, but this is a great apologetic. She said to me, she said, you know, before that night, when I would do bad things, I knew it was wrong and I did feel guilty. But now when I do some things that I know don't please God, it is deeply convicting. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's an entirely different experience. It's powerful. And that difference is, is really meaningful. And I think is an evidence uh, of, toward, maybe not an evidence that compels you to believe, but it's an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. So anyway, uh, we, experienced, we, we went through that. And then, um, so I didn't intend to do missionary dating, but indirectly, I guess I did. And uh, that, but, but you see, that laid the groundwork for me getting into apologetics because during that period, as I was listening to what was coming out of her church and reading about it, I was researching how to respond to this stuff, how to respond to people that had false doctrine and were marring the gospel message and twisting it. And, and that, in, in uh, some ways, is the most important type of apologetics because um, that's a, that kind of deception has elements of truth in it. And so it's very important. I don't even know that I, I had a strong awareness of apologetics at the time, but, but that, was, that was there. 
Around the same time, one of my best friends from high school started to experience or had already been experiencing same sex attraction. Now, this is not going to be about that. I've got a video on that subject that you can search. But um, I had a friend who was experiencing same sex attraction, but yet he had been like a strong conservative Christian. He was an evangelical conservative Christian and politically conservative and from a politically conservative family in a politically conservative place, Lebanon, Tennessee. And I don't know how red or blue Lebanon, Tennessee is, but everything they sell at Cracker Barrel and Lifeway Christian bookstores goes through warehouses in Lebanon, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. I mean, he had he went to a conservative Christian school, went to a conservative Southern Baptist church. I mean, this this guy and he believed all of it. And uh, but yet he began to experience and really struggle with same sex attraction. And for a long time, uh, he tried to ignore it. But when he went to college, he kind of, it kind of became more. Um, he realized he couldn't really ignore it. He had to make some decisions about it, um, about how to, I'm not I'm not talking about whether someone decides to become to have homosexual feelings. That's not what I'm talking about. He had to make a decision about how to function within his conservative Christian paradigm with same-sex attraction. Uh, for a while, he, he decided, maybe I can look at the Bible and reinterpret it, and uh, maybe it doesn't teach uh, about same-sex attraction what I, what I thought it did. But he realized that that's, he couldn't honestly take it seriously. It was, to him, it was clear that the Bible was not approving of this. You can go to Romans chapter one, you can go to first Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. And you can see that it's not just, um, it's, it's not just the nature of, or the context of the relationships. It was the, um, it was, it was the very acts themselves. Um, and so whatever you want to say about that or think about that, he was wrestling with that. Then he moved on to a position that was, Hey, maybe I could, maybe the Bible is kind of, Jesus is not everyone's way, but he's my way. And you can take what you want and leave the rest from the Bible, kind of a cafeteria style Christianity. But you realize that was kind of disingenuous and wasn't really that didn't really flow with historic Christianity. And so at some point he realized I've got to make a decision between whether or not I'm going to um, have a biblical Christian lifestyle or I'm going to have I'm going to go away from the Bible and have a gay lifestyle. And that's what he did. And this actually led to a degradation in his faith over a few years to the point that he affirms atheism now. Now, he he's he began to antagonize my faith at that point and not in an, like, well, I mean, it was obnoxious, but not in like a real rigorous way. But the, the, the challenges were there and it rattled me. It didn't rattle me in the sense that I was experiencing doubt about the truth of Christianity. But it rattled me in the sense that I wanted to be able to give him an answer that I didn't know how to give. I wanted to be able to say something that I didn't know how to say. And so this led me to, to take a, a further look at the reasons to believe that Christianity was true. And in fact, I didn't become an apologist that, that, that moment, but I, I began to deconstruct, you know. And so I, I thought, okay, um, I'm confident of Christianity, but I'm going to take apart everything that I say I believe doctrinally and everything else and put it back together and see if it holds water. Now, pause there for a second, because that's happening simultaneously to something else that was going on in my life. Right after I be, actually um, about the time I got married, I, I had already been a youth pastor at one church and now I was a youth pastor at another church. 
And um, I was 20 years old at this time. And, uh, and, and, and at that time, uh, my wife and I got married. And I'd been a youth pastor for a while, and a, a possibility opened up for me to pastor, be what they call a senior pastor of, of a Southern Baptist church. Now, I was probably too young to pastor anything, and uh, there are some things I did wrong, but I don't think I really hurt anybody. Uh, so that so that's good. But I moved to Florida and I began pastoring uh, a church there. It was a small church. It was one of those churches that had been um, a large congregation at one time, but the side of town that where all the rich people used to live had kind of gone downhill and there were a few people hanging on still. Um, and, and that was a great opportunity for me to learn some things and to learn to put sermons together and learn to look at the commentaries and study deeper and all those kind of things. And so I did. It was a really stressful time in my life as I looked back. I've just gotten married and now I'm putting together three messages a week and I don't really know what I'm doing. Fortunately, my father was able to give me great advice and kind of help me along. And I had he was there for me to pass things by. And after a couple of years, I moved from there and went to pastor the second church in, in uh, a small town outside of, uh, outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, above Chattanooga, McMinnville, Tennessee. And so I went there, and um, uh, that church grew over three years from about 225 in regular attendance to over 600 in regular attendance. God really blessed there. And it was really exciting. We went to two services and, and, um, and it was during that time that I got a lot of the antagonism from my friend from high school who, who was now gay. And so I, that I deconstructed while I was pastoring. Now I still believed the Christian message. And so I wasn't being disingenuous in the pulpit. I don't have one of those kind of testimonies where I was an atheist for a while, but I did deconstruct and put everything back together beginning at that point. Um, and some things changed, but that got me into the world of apologetics. It was also during that time that every summer I would go through a series in June on uh, false beliefs that were in our community. So I would, I would talk about um, theologically liberal churches. I would talk about um, uh, the Mormons in the community, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, things like this. And, uh, and so I, I got my feet wet with some apologetics there. <laughs> but and I began. Uh, oh, I haven't. I, I, I skipped something that really important. During this time, I had left. Obviously, before we went to Florida, before I started pastoring, I left Middle Tennessee State University. You can tell this is really off the cuff. <laughs> I left Middle Tennessee State University uh, and gone to seminary because an atheist academic advisor noticed that I was trying to schedule as many philosophy and religion courses into my program as I could. Um, and she asked me why. And I said, well, it's because ultimately I want to be in ministry. And she said, let me ask you a question. If you want to be in ministry and not in music business, why don't you just go to seminary or Bible college and then seminary? And I said, you know something? You're absolutely right. And that's what I did. And so, uh, and so that catches you up there. <laughs> so, uh, so, so at this point now, while I'm pastoring my second church, Toward the end of that, I uh, started looking deeper into reasons to believe. And as an entry point, 
I was a young earth creationist. And so who did I find? I found Ken Ham and Kent Hovind. And man, did I eat up their material. I mean, I was drinking it in. MP3 players had come out by that point. And I would download stuff from Sermon Audio and other places where I could get their, their lectures. And then I would listen to them while I was working out. And I listened to each of those things multiple times. I loved it. And uh, about the time I left pastoring, I, I had also read uh, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for a Creator, those kind of things. About the time I left pastoring and went into full-time traveling, speaking at different churches and things like that, because I really felt a heart, I, I recognized a pastor needs to be interested in seeing people come to Christ, but he also needs to be interested in helping them grow in their, in their relationship with Christ and discipling them. It's what we call discipleship. And I, I was doing both of those things, and I think I was doing them okay, but, but I, I really felt drawn to evangelism. And I was starting to see how apologetics could augment your evangelism or, or be a part of your evangelism. Because you're going to run into people that don't believe, right? <laughs> so what are you going to say? And so, um, so I left there, and somewhere in, around that time, Ken Ham was talking about, and I don't think he said the word heretic, but that was the impression that I got. These heretics who don't affirm young earth creationism like William Lane Craig and Norman Geisler and named them. And I thought, well, I want to know who these liberals are because I need to know what these false teachers are saying. This is weird to say because, like, I'm talking about heroes of mine now. So I, I, I bought uh, Reasonable Faith. I bought um, Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology um, and some other stuff from him. And I began to read. And I thought, man, these heretics seem to know what they're talking about. And um, uh, about this, somewhere in all this, Anthony Flew's book, um, There Is a God, came out. Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, came out. Um, the atheist books uh, came out, uh, you know, God's Not Great by Hitchens and The End of Faith, Sam Harris and God Delusion, Dawkins. And, you know, I, and all these things were flowing around in my mind at the same time. I read all these books. I read I was getting everything I could through audio and video on the Internet. Fortunately, video debates on the Internet were popping up like crazy. And so I was like, I think the first generation to really learn apologetics that way, too, along with reading books. And at some point this, during this deconstruction and, and assessing all these things, I had to face, okay, well, what do I really believe about creation? And um, most of what I put back together in my faith stayed the same. There were some minor changes that aren't relevant to get into in this, in this video. But one of the things that changed that doesn't seem like a big deal to some of you, but was definitely a big deal in my family because my father was a young earth creationist and I've been raised to believe young earth creationism. And I, it, it, was, it was just a part of the biblical message as I had taken it in. There are many atheists out there for whom it is a part of the message they were taught, almost to the point of their believing that it was synonymous with the gospel message. So that when they felt like young earth creationism fell away, then that was a fast track toward other things quickly peeling off that left them outside of the faith. And I think that that is silly. It doesn't need to happen. It's short-sighted, and it didn't happen with me. 
young earth creationism fell away from me, but that doesn't mean the authority of the Bible fell away or inerrancy fell away or Genesis fell away. None of that happened. The Bible nowhere intends to teach the age of the church, uh, the age, <laughs> the age of the church, the age of the earth or the age of the universe. And it's important that we recognize that. Now, I realize that I've got a lot of listeners who are young earth creationists. I, I totally get that. And I'm not preaching at you. I don't care what you believe about the age of the earth. And it's not a big part of what I do. The reason I'm talking about it now is not to belittle people who are young earth creationism, who are my brothers and sisters. It's it's to t it's to raise something that changed that that took a long time for me to let go of. And then to be open about and to be honest about. And when I was, it did lead to some lengthy discussions with other Christian friends, pastors and my own father. But, it, you know, fortunately, my father actually wasn't as big as a deal as I thought it would be. But I thought it was going to be a big deal. Um, I don't know what it's like to deconvert from Christianity, and I hope to God I never do. But I do know what it's like to let go of a cherished belief that you have, in my case, had thundered from the pulpit was the truth and then come off of it and have to open, be open about that. And one thing that I can tell you is, so one thing I can tell you is that it's, liberating in a sense there's something pleasurable about it there's something pleasurable about it maybe not for everyone but there was for me that that i could do that not 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 arrogant that's going to be another point in a second but but there was something about it that that i did i had a capacity to do something that i never thought i would do and that i didn't think i could do and i let go of that and um and so that was pleasurable in a sense and yes, it can lead to an arrogance or a pride about it, an arrogance and a pride that you were able to do something that other Christians probably aren't able to do. Other Christians might not need to do, but but you did. And that is pleasurable. It can develop a sense of pride. And if you're if you're a Christian or an atheist out there, that can become, because it's pleasurable and because it can uh, create a sense of pride in you, it can create the desire to see if you can do it with more things or if you need to do it with more things. And so you begin looking at other doctrines. And there are other things. I'll talk about one in a moment. But um, I think, you know, I, I know some people on Facebook who are Christians, who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, who once that first doctrinal position fell, they changed a lot of doctrinal things. There's um, a student of ours, David Paulman, who I think it was him that created a graph that showed like, I don't know, eight or 12 things that, that he shifted positions on. And when I look at that, and by the way, I know people who are in their 60s who shift those positions. And what it does to me is when I see atheists say, oh, you know, you're saying you, you just don't think we understand Christianity. Trust me. I was in church. I was raised in church. I understand Christianity. I just don't buy it. Uh, I believe you believe that. And I don't want to be condescending. No, this is going to sound a little condescending, but it's true. There are people who have been looking in a sophisticated and detailed way at their faith and at the doctrines of their faith 
for decades and have shifted on a number of things without ditching the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> you haven't looked at every aspect of every view, right? Nor should you necessarily be expected to. But the point is, I think sometimes one thing falls away and then a bunch of other stuff falls away pretty darn quick. And you can watch the deconversion testimonies to see that. When that's jumping over, that's skipping a lot of steps, right? The the idea that you understand Christianity perfectly fine and you reject it when there are people, academics, who have studied this for decades and haven't done that. Come on, I'm not buying it. I get that you buy it. I don't believe you're being dishonest. Think more deeply about it, I guess, would be would be the thing. Um, and one of the things that leads to that is when you point to extremely fundamentalist understandings of Christianity, and not everyone does this. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. And, and you reject that, and that it to you is Christianity. Or you're aware of a couple of views um, when there are multiple views, right? Every time I hear somebody say something like, Jesus was wrong in his predictions about when he was going to return. Jesus was wrong about the coming of the kingdom. You know, all, all these kind of things. Or, um, you know, the, the, they only understand one aspect, or one take on end times, or one take on creation, or one take on hell. And I think, you, no, you don't. <laughs> that's not... Yeah, you know, okay. I, I'm not gonna preach about that. But but that's an important point is that you know it there's there's a long it's a lifetime journey of tweaking and inspecting and making sure you have it right. You don't just skip over all those steps to well, this uh, young earth creationism is false, so I guess Christianity is false. No, nah, it's that's silly. Uh but um I got into now at this point I'd moved to Nashville again. And I'd gone into full-time traveling and preaching at churches. And this is one of the times in my life where I am most certain that I was not in God's will. Um, You know, that'd be the nice thing about being a Calvinist is whatever I end up doing in some sense was God's determination for my life. Uh, but I, as a non-Calvinist, I was—I I don't believe God is determining everything that I do, and I was out of God's will. Because for reasons that don't aren't you know important to this, I knew that our family was supposed to leave the place where I was pastoring in McMinnville, Tennessee, go in, and I was going to go into traveling ministry like I did. But I was to move to Evansville, Indiana, where I live right now. I knew as much as I can know anything about what I think God wants for me, and I think I can know things. I believe I knew that, and it was the wrong decision, and I knew it was wrong. Now, I had lied to myself, and there was all kinds of reasons, like, hey, Nashville has got to be the place because that's where all the interstates come together in Nashville. It makes a lot of sense. I grew up here. This is home, you know. Um, There's a lot of churches in Nashville that might have me come speak. You know, it made a lot of sense. Evansville, Indiana, there's not even an interstate, right? So what? that didn't make any sense, but, but I knew it. And I got out of God's will and moved to Nashville. And um, I have to say that that my life, our family suffered greatly. I suffered in my marriage. I suffered financially. I suffered in a lot of what. In fact, we had a condo in Nashville that we lived in when we were there that I just sold like a few months ago. And that's been 12 years ago that we left there. <laughs> and, but, you know, we couldn't sell it because we moved out in 2008 and that's when the economy crashed and we couldn't sell it. So, um, so I suffered in a lot of ways there 
And when I finally got things in gear and recognized, God, enough, I will do what I know you wanted me to do. I moved to Evansville. We moved to Evansville, Indiana. And uh, so that was a that was a very interesting point in my life. But while living in Nashville, my apologetics interest just flourished. I mean, I read everything. I studied everything. And uh, it was at that time where I was kind of trying to take things apart and put it back together. The, the resurrection case, if I'm completely honest, and even now, I, I think the Kalam cosmological argument and contingency arguments, and but particularly for me, the Kalam. I don't, I don't need to hear all your comments in the comment section about this, okay? I, I, don't need to, I just don't need to hear it. I've heard it all a thousand times, okay? I know your take. But um, to me, that was so powerful for God's existence to the point that the idea that God didn't exist to me was, was laughable, okay? But the resurrection case, even now, I don't think is as strong as the Kalam, the resurrection case is not as strong for the resurrection as the Kalam is for God's existence. Now, I know that I can think already of the atheists that are going to clip this out. So I'm aware that's going to happen. But uh, the resurrection case is darn strong, in my opinion. Strong enough, strong as it needs to be, stronger than it needs to be. Um, and it's, it's certainly enough. But at that point, I was trying to work through it. And I knew who Mike Lycona was. I'd watched some of his debates, early stuff. I mean, he and Gary Habermas went on a show called The Infidel Guy long time ago. Reginald Finney, maybe some of y'all remember that, Finley. And, um, and I, at, at this point in my life, I was still what we call an evangelist. I was traveling, speaking, and regular evangelism at different churches. And um, I became, I was a Southern Baptist, and I became the youngest ever president of the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelists, which has the worst acronym of any, anything ever. It's COSBY. <laughs> COSBY, the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelists. And uh, I, I became the, the youngest ever president of that organization. And this really helped me to prepare for later becoming the president of a Bible college and seminary because it, it taught me, for, I, I'd been a pastor, but now this taught me further organizational skills on a much larger uh, national level. Well, the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelist is uh, a denominationally endorsed arm of the Southern Baptist Convention under the auspices of the North American Mission Board, NAM. The Southern Baptist Convention has the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. NAM is for the um, uh, doing evangelism and ministry within the U.S., and the IMB is for outside the U.S. So this was, this, I was the head of a, a Southern Baptist entity under NAM, and NAM cut our funding for the first time in 30-something years. Um, cut the funding for Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelists. I had to navigate that whole thing, um, and, and it was really something. But uh, that, was really, that was really good and helpful for me, and because of it, I got to go to a lot of conferences. Guess who was working for the North American Mission Board at the time? Mike Lycona. And Mike Lycona will always be special to me because... When I got to one of these conferences, I saw him. I had just been listening to a debate of his in the car on the way to this conference, had no idea he was going to be there. And I said, you're Mike Lycona. He said, yes, I am. I said, oh, my gosh, I was just listening to you in the car. Uh, I love your ministry. And I began to talk to him. And he said, well, let's go chat. 
And Michael Icona sat with me a nobody as far as he was concerned. And he sat with me for three hours and just, just talked, just talking apologetics, talking shop, talking about ministry, talking about the Bible. And that relationship, that friendship exists to this day. We've been around the world together. We've, I'll never forget, driving around in Sarasota together in a rental car and hanging out at the beach and going to restaurants and doing all kinds of cool things together. And we've done that many, many times. He's a, he's a, I consider him a close personal friend. and He's coached me for debates and things like that. I talk to him all the time. Love Mike. Because he showed a young apologist attention when there was no benefit to him to do so just because he loves Jesus and just because he loves people. So that's one of the reasons I'm pretty defensive when people speak out against Mike. Uh, but that was, uh, that was very important to me. And it was around this time that I had my first debate and it happened in Hialeah, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami in a Cuban church, um, Estrella de Belen Iglesia Bautista. And I debated a Harvard graduate who was a professor of world religions at Florida International University, Daniel Alvarez. That's on our YouTube channel. You can go watch it. And that was like in 2010. And, uh, and, and that was just such an important moment for me. I had two days to prepare for that debate. Didn't, didn't know it was coming and still did it. Now I want eight months to prepare for a debate, but, but uh, two days. And it went really well. And, and I, you know, that, that gave me a level of confidence and a direction for my ministry and where I thought I was going in the future. It was also around this time that I looked at another doctrinal position, and that was the traditional view of hell. On this position, um, I, I realized that um, the conditionalist case for hell had gotten a lot better than I thought it was. It was a lot better than I thought it was, the biblical case for it. And good enough that when I preached, what I would say is, and if you heard me preach any time in the past 12 years, you heard me say this or present on this subject. What I, what I, because I want to be clear on this is an important thing. And so what I've said is this. Look, here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9. That if you've got to cut off your hell, not to go to Gehenna, which is the word we translate for hell, like after the judgment hell, we, we translate, use the word hell for that. Um, if you've got to cut off your arm, you cut off your arm, gouge out your eye, gouge out your eye, uh, cut off your leg, cut off your leg. Because and he's speaking hyperbolically here, not literally. But the point was, it's better to go into heaven with one eye or go into the kingdom with one eye than to go into Gehenna with both eyes, where... The worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, that's what the Bible says. No Christian can fault me for going to the words of Jesus. But when I present this, I say, now, is that talking about literal, unending flames? It could be. It might not be. But whatever you think it's saying, um, whether that's imagery or not, what's clear is that Jesus thought you shouldn't go to this place. And it's not good. And that's how I've always preached it. But I, I, I was rethinking that whole thing and, and considering it. Um, and that led to ultimately a friendship with Chris Date, who's the head of Rethinking Hell and, uh, and several other people. And that was, that was very important to me. But you understand, I had been a Christian now and a pastor and an evangelist and an apologist and was now by this point, uh, uh, I was finishing up doctoral work and start, and I was about to become like maybe an associate professor at Trinity. And, and yet I was still tweaking my doctrine and, and refining it. 
And yet people think that, oh, young earth creationism falls. So this is all bunk. I mean, that, that is, that 